Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and on the show today, we'll explore where the Trump administration and the Republican Party are now and where they are headed. Are Republicans more committed to conservatism or populism? We'll talk about that with leading Republicans. The party is moving swiftly on two fronts, to dismantle Obamacare and promote fossil fuels. Moments after President Trump was inaugurated, the White House website removed all references to climate change. Days later, he signed executive orders signaling approval of the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines. Republicans are also moving to open up oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve. These moves are all in line with his campaign promises, no surprises. Over the next hour, we will discuss the politics and economics of how we power our economy, We also will get into the national security dimensions of energy independence and the geopolitics of climate. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we're pleased to have with us three experts. Jeremy Carl is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. During the campaign, he met with Florida Governor Jeb Bush, Senators Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, Ben Carson, and Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. John Hoffmeister is former president of Shell Oil Company. He currently is chairman of Aaron Energy, an oil and gas exploration company active in Africa. John is also a Climate One advisor and supporter. Bob Inglis is former Republican congressman from South Carolina. He lost a primary election after he spoke up in favor of accepting climate science. He now heads a nonprofit organization, Republican, with an E-N, .org, that organizes conservatives interested in environmental conservation. Please welcome them to Climate One. Bob Inglis, let's begin in 2004. Your son is 18. You think Al Gore is cuckoo. And your 18-year-old son comes to you and says, hey, Dad. Yes, he was leading a new constituency. His mother agreed. His four sisters agreed. (laughs) (laughs) They could change the locks on the doors. It's a very important constituency to respond to. Um, So um, 
politics, all politics is local. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> uh, that was the beginning. Jeremy's got five kids. He That's knows right. about these things. Um, they're, not, they're not yet uh, lobbying me yet. Yes, exactly. Oldest is just 10. His oldest is 10 years old, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, Greg, that was the first of a three-step metamorphosis. My, my uh, son told me, uh, you know, well, for six years in, I was in Congress. I said climate change was hooey. I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore was for it. Um, and since I represented the reddest district in the reddest state in the nation, that was sufficient. Um, and so um, then I was out six years doing commercial real estate law again in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, ran for Congress after Jim DeMint left the seat to go to the Senate. Uh, my son came to me in '04 and said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. <laughs> um, and so... Um, the second step in the metamorphosis is going to Antarctica and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. Third step was really something of a spiritual awakening. Another science committee trip, Great Barrier Reef, Aussie climate scientists showing us coral bleaching. I could tell we shared the worldview. You know, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Scott was preaching the gospel. I could see it in his eyes, hear it in his voice. Um, and later he told me about conservation changes he's making his life in order to love God and love people. And I got right inspired, uh, wanted to be like Scott, loving God, loving people, and came home and introduced the Raise Wages, Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Probably not a good idea to introduce a carbon tax in the midst of the Great Recession in the reddest district and the reddest state in the nation. But, uh, so that was three-step metamorphosis. But Greg, by the way, my son is now 31 years old by some, I don't know how it happened. But anyway, he, he turned out to be 31, and he's here tonight. So um, he's, he's at, uh, there he is, right back there. <laughs> so Bob, finish that. So you were then lost a Tea Party primary, is that right? Lost to a Tea Party Oh, yeah, candidate. there is that. Um, yeah, that... Uh, <laughs> I was trying to avoid the unpleasantness of late. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, in 2010, uh, there's this guy named Trey Gowdy who got 71% of the vote in a Republican primary, and I got the other 29% um, in a Republican runoff after 12 years in Congress, which is a rather spectacular face plant. <laughs> but, hey, if Rick Perry can come back from one, two... I think maybe I could come back after. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, it, it's rather spectacular face plant, though, in that, in that fourth district of South Carolina. John Hoffmeister, uh, I believe it was the late 1990s, uh, scientists had just concluded that there was a human fingerprint, that human activity was warming uh, the atmosphere. Saudi Arabia, Venezuela had signed on to this uh, international climate science report, and the industry responded by forming the Global Climate Coalition. Uh, took a page from the tobacco playbook. Uh, oil companies were part of this to, to push back. You were uh, at Shell Oil at that time. What did you do about that group? I, I was actually at the parent headquarters in The Hague, and I had a global position. And we saw that Shell Oil had joined this group, Global Climate Coalition. And uh, we researched it to find a little bit about what it was doing, always worried about what our subsidiary in the U.S. was up to. <laughs> because sometimes the U.S. subsidiary was not exactly aligned with the global headquarters. And so as we dug into it, we found, indeed, that this looked like a fishy organization that seemed to promote one thing but actually did another. And that is they seemed to be interested superficially in effects on climate, but in fact they were working to defeat any legislative effort 
to do anything that might amend how business is practiced and how industry operates. So we fundamentally called up, my boss and I, the CEO and I, called up the president of Shell Oil Company and said, you know what? You've got to get out of this group, and you've got to get out today. We're not supportive of it. And we let him explain why that was not possible. And then we said, well, if you want to come to work tomorrow, you'll get out today. And that's what it came down to. We said, it's, it's, you belong to that organization tomorrow, you're out of a job. You may be the president of Shell Oil today, but you won't be tomorrow. Because we will not have our corporate name associated with such a group. Well, he called and quit the group that night. Because uh, it was a phony group, and we weren't going to be part of it. We'd also made certain commitments to our shareholders. With three, this was 1997 and early 1998. We made commitment to our shareholders on certain aspects of meeting European standards on uh, cap-and-trade and committing ourselves to working on a cap-and-trade program in Europe. We'd also been looking at our portfolio, and we'd announced a billion-dollar investment in renewable energy, which we knew nothing about at the time, but we said we're going to have to buy our way in, so a billion dollars was the, was the starting number. And uh, that was one of the reasons I joined Shell. I joined Shell in 97. I wasn't part of the oil industry until then. I worked in other companies like GE and Allied Signal, which is now Honeywell, and had always been an energy consumer. So I had an opportunity to become part of an energy producer, and I thought, my goodness, the 21st century is going to be an exciting time for energy. So I joined. And I joined to help transform the company and, to the extent I could, the industry, so that it could really adapt and change to what Rio stood for, to what Kyoto stood for, and, and subsequent to what Paris stood for last year, a year before last. But at that time, what was Exxon's response? Well, Exxon was very critical of Shell for dropping out of Global Climate Coalition. And uh, frankly, during... <laughs> For all of my sins, I got to be president of Shell Oil Company. <laughs> so, so I then uh, entered into a one-on-one -on -one relationship, first with Lee Raymond, CEO of ExxonMobil, and then subsequently Rex Tillerson. We had our differences. And we could maturely, and sometimes with a little edge on the voice, discuss what our differences were and why. And because we both sat across the table from each other as members of the executive committee of the American Petroleum Institute. And, and so we had our differences, and, but, but I would make the point that the oil industry has always had its differences. People think the word big oil refers to a homogeneous group of think-alikes. That's just not the case. It is anything but homogeneous, and you have all kinds of different players, actors, who are big, who are medium-sized, who are small, they all come at it with a different investment level, with a different mindset, with a different philosophy. And yes, they coalesce around some issues, but there's a cardinal rule of operating effect. And that is, if the executive committee is not unanimous on something, then the API doesn't take a position. And what do you think about Exxon funding a campaign to, to create doubt and cloud the science. They're very, a science-based organization. They're very smart engineers. What do you think of their campaign to cloud and confuse the science? Well, of course, that was many years ago. That was in the, in the 90s. The Global Climate Coalition doesn't exist. It fell apart. But they funded Heartland and other organizations more recently. 
uh, I can't say that I'm that knowledgeable. I didn't follow what they were doing that closely. But I think there is, um, you know, uh, under Rex Tillerson, a much clearer board-supported agenda inside ExxonMobil. And the extent to which the board is involved, and I know members of the board of directors of ExxonMobil, I actually feel pretty good about their position on carbon tax, their position on being less critical of those who take a different view. And I've watched that evolve over the last, say, decade or so. This issue of a carbon tax and taxing pollution has been going on for, for quite some time. Before we go to Jeremy Carl, I want to roll this clip of uh, the economist and, and conservative icon Milton Friedman way back on the Phil Donahue show in 1979. So there's more of a case, for example, for uh, emission control than there is for airbags. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what's the best way to do it? And the best way to do it is not to have bureaucrats in Washington write rules and regulations saying that a car has to carry this, that, or the other. The best way to do it is to impose a tax on the amount of pollutants emitted by a car and make it in the self-interest of the car manufacturers and of the consumers to keep down the amount of pollution in that way. That's the economist Milton Friedman. Um... Jeremy Carl, he's an icon of free market principles in the, in the United States. You're at a free market uh, institution. Uh, what do you think about his case for taxing carbon pollution because it harms other people? He's saying that you shouldn't put government shouldn't require airbags because it's you know it's up to you if you want to hurt yourself. But you hurt other people, the government should intervene. Well, I think the the ultimate question, and I've written a lot uh, both for academic and popular literature on on this issue. Um, you know, I think one has to distinguish the theory from the practice. Um, and uh, in theory, there could be a lot to be said for particularly if, if you're cutting it with offsetting taxes elsewhere. So it's not about growing government or creating a fiscal drag, having carbon tax. Um, but the, the practical details, I think, frankly, are still a huge holdup. Uh, we saw this in, in Washington State. Actually, a friend of mine, Yaron Bauman, who's a, actually quite liberal Democrat, uh, was promoting this uh, revenue-neutral carbon tax uh, in Washington, and it failed because of environmentalist opposition, um, which is a very complicated story. I'm not going to get into it here, but, but I'd encourage folks to look at it if they're kind of interested in knowing more. Um, and I think that shows some of the practical difficulties and some of the reasons why conservatives, and I include myself here, um, uh, are certainly... I think practically a little bit skeptical of where this would go, why it might get hijacked, um, what other things would go along with it. Um, if we're doing this, is it on top of a bunch of other rules and regulations that we've already got, or are we getting rid of a bunch of subsidies? Are we getting rid of a bunch of rules and regulations and just saying, hey, like Milton Friedman says, the best thing is to price? If it were the latter, um, I think it would potentially have some significant appeal. My concern is in the practical sense um, we don't wind up in that position. And I think uh, you know, one of my more skeptical uh, friends in this, in this world who's actually uh, helping uh, the Trump transition team on energy, I won't, won't name him, but you know, he's, he's a very thoughtful, uh, smart guy and has thought a lot about these issues and is not doctrinaire about them at all. But he sort of said the problem with even saying, if you're on the right, I'm for a carbon tax 
if or but is immediately everybody on the left ignores everything you're saying after that. And they say, oh, you're, you're for a carbon tax. Well, then, you know, if you won't do it in this situation, then you're Satan or something like that. And I think the, the concern is what goes after that if or but makes a big difference. And I, I'm skeptical that we're at a place right now politically with the left and right where uh, we could get to a deal that would, would be agreeable to both parties. Bob Inglis, there was some thought that if uh, Mitt Romney got into the White House, that he might put a price on carbon pollution like he did in Massachusetts. There's sort of uh, conservatives can, can price carbon perhaps more easily than, than Democrats can. And there's this talk, I've heard this term, carbon tax reform. Donald Trump wants to change the tax system. Is there any... Is it folly to think that carbon pricing could be part of a broader tax reform package in this political situation? That's Bob Inglis. Well, um, it sounds like we need Jeremy to get to that transition guy. (laughs) Um, Because as long as they're thinking that way, no, there's 0% chance. But it's a very, uh, Jeremy used the word skeptical, I call it cynical. I mean, I think that's a very cynical view about the way that politics works. Um, the reality is America is waiting for somebody to bring us together, somebody to lead and say, you know what, conservatives, do you have anything to offer? Well, listen to Milton Friedman, the father of conservatism. We sort of bow at the mention of his name along with Reagan, right? In the rest of that clip, what he says, what do you do about pollution? You tax it, of course. Well, imagine saying that in front of my friend Jim DeMint. I mean, if you say that in front of Jim right now, because he's got a mail house going at Heritage, he's got to raise a lot of money through the mail. Well, you can't say it if you're Jim. But you've got to have somebody with enough nerve and courage to say, sure, come along, let's do it. Now, you do have to, as Jeremy just said, you've got to say to those folks in Washington State, Not right now about your interest in environmental justice. Not right now. Wait. Because if you're going to get Jeremy and the skeptic, I'm thinking cynical, on the Trump transition team on board, you got to set that aside for a while. And it's sort of like, you know, Kevin Hassett once uh, took a group of uh, progressives and conservatives to sit at the feet of Kevin Hassett. You know, he's an economist at AEI. Kevin said, got a deal for you. We'll price carbon dioxide. I'll be for that. And I, Kevin Hassett, get to choose the offsetting tax cuts. Deal? Several progressives started shaking their head no. He said, why not? They said to him, well, because you'll choose a corporate income tax reduction. He says, precisely what I do. Real gut check for you, isn't it? How important is climate change? Okay, so it's left and right that have to give up on this thing and come together. The left has to say, listen, environmental justice, later. The right has to say, really, we can trust our fellow citizens to come up with a solution that works. If we can't, the experiment in self-government has failed, and we need to call up the queen and ask her back. (laughs) Um, Because it, it must be that we need somebody over us. Because we have failed. If we can't figure a way to bring left and right together in this country and say we've got a problem, the world is waiting for America to lead, somebody show the courage to risk something, then we can get there.
you're just joining us, that was Bob Inglis, former Republican member of Congress from South Carolina. I'm Greg Dalton. My other guests at Climate One today are John Hoffmeister, former president of Shale Oil, and Jeremy Carl from the Hoover Institution. Uh, Bob Inglis, you said that populism and conservatism are on a collision course. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, my view of Donald Trump is that he has no settled view on anything um, and that it is a populist movement. It's the culmination of the Tea Party. Um, it, it's a fire. And if you think you can direct fire, you're wrong. Um, it, it consumes. It's pitchforks and torches. And it's a very um, excited thing where you can get people all charged up and you can march downtown, you can burn down some houses. But you can't build anything. Because there's nothing to build with. All you got is anger and pitchforks and torches. And those aren't good tools for building. You got to have some other things to build with. And so I think we are facing the conflagration, the, 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 the collision between conservatism and populism. I'm happy to be in the conservative vehicle because it's got a real steel bumper on the front. And that populist thing is plastic in the front. And when they collide, we actually believe something as conservatives. Populists don't believe. There's no settled belief. There is no philosophy to it. It's just I'm mad because globalization and automation are threatening my developed world future. And I'm mad as heck. That's all it's about. Conservatives are people who have answers to how you deal with that. And so I'm happy to be in that conservative vehicle because when that collision comes, and for example, Paul Ryan has asked to support border tariffs, Paul, I think, is going to say, I will lose on that because I am not doing that with you, Donald. Um, and so there comes one of the collision points, and there may be others. Um, so I think we are on this collision course between populism and conservatism. I'm banking on conservatism winning. And you also think that Republicans should prepare for a Watergate scenario. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that, you know, what happened with Richard Nixon, as I understand it, is, uh, you know, it, it clear there, there are problems. And there were actually Republican senators who went to him and said, it's time to go. That's courage. When you go to speak to your own party and say, it's over, you got to go. Um, that spared the country of a prolonged process. And so I think that um, the, the risk that we're running as conservatives is for the last eight years, we all lined up and said, it's a secret Muslim, non-American socialist in the White House. It's all his fault. Globalization, automation, the decline of the car, and the pace of cultural change. Those are all Barack, Barack Hussein Obama's fault. Um, and so there was this lockstep that developed lockstep opposition. That, as I tweeted recently, is a very dangerous thing right now. Conservatives need to find the courage. Republicans in the House and the Senate need to brace themselves for the conser- for the, with the courage of being able to face him, Donald Trump, and say, we're not following all that you're saying. We will oppose you, and we will stop you if you start looking authoritarian, or if you start looking like a populist who's out of control, we will stop you. 
And so it's very important for us to be speaking to one another as conservatives. End of the lockstep stuff. End of the oppose everything. Begin this thing of saying, okay, we're going to sift through it. The wheat and the chaff. And if there's chaff, it needs to get gone. And if there's something good in what Donald Trump's talking about, then let's do it. Jeremy Carl, your, your take on that? Well, I think that's a little bit cynical. No, um, I, I do. I mean, I, I think I, it is important because I don't, I, I don't want to be the skunk at the garden party, but I also don't want to you know, diminish uh, you know, maybe some of my differences. And, 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 and Bob and I have been on the panels before, and, and we have a lot of areas of agreement and also disagreement. Um, I am, I'm not as critical of uh, either the Trump administration, um, although I think certainly people have raised valid concerns, or necessarily of the place where the party um, is as a whole. I do think that there is um, uh, there are points of collision between populism and conservatism. Um, there are going to be places that I actually have confidence. I do agree with Bob. I, I actually don't think the GOP will just follow Trump wherever he wants to go. So I'm not particularly worried about that. Um, uh, I do think that there are actually um, ways in which this election cycle exposed that both of the parties had really kind of gotten out of touch with their voters. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what that all means for energy and the environment is unclear, but I actually think one of the, the nice things about uh, this the situation with Donald Trump is he's not wedded to you know, I've run on these five very particular things and only that he's a deal maker at the end of the day. And I think if somebody puts a good deal on the table, um, I think it's surprising what we could get done. I'm actually much more um, cynical or skeptical, if, if you will, about the Democrats' interests in doing that because I actually think that you could do a very interesting deal that would be very good for the environment, but I'm not sure that you could bring the environmental groups along. I think you could bring some Democratic office holders, a significant number, but I don't think the Democrats have always kind of felt like um, when I've had conversations with them about legislation that they were negotiating between themselves and the environmental groups. And no, you're negotiating with the Republicans. And I think that's even more true now. Um, and that means you're not going to get everything you want. And the Republicans are not going to get everything that they want. But I think that there are absolutely deals out there to be done. Um, I'm just, I'm not sure that people are right now in the frame of mind that we're really going to get to do them. I'd love to be proved wrong. I'm certainly open and, and I've tried to talk cross-party on, on a number of things. I, I just came from a meeting with, with Steve Chu, Obama's energy secretary, before I was here. So, John Hoffmeister, you were part of a project that really redefined the politics of energy in this country. In, in 2007, 2008, there was U.S. Climate Action uh, Partnership. It was for cap and trade. It was some of the biggest corporations in the country, you brought in Shell Oil, uh, Conoco came in, BP, Chevron and Exxon stayed out, but it was industry and environmental groups, and they were ready to make a deal. Can we get back there? We had uh, major manufacturers, U.S. Steel, GE, uh, think of almost anybody that is a big consumer of energy and who also pollutes. And uh, we had uh, all the major uh, utilities like uh, Exelon and uh, uh, a few others, NRG and a few others. And we had five environmental groups. That was the most amazing fact. We had NRDC, Friends of the Earth, a number of others who were all part and parcel. We were funded by the Rockefeller Foundation to try to actually get something done. Our mission was to put a legislative framework in front of the United States Congress by 2000 and after the 2008 election. 
and we achieved that. We put a legislative framework in front of the U.S. Congress in January 2009, and it was at the start of the congressional session. There were some disappointments. There were some coal country Congress persons who were Democrats who really worked hard for their constituents to give coal free credits for 25 years. And as a consequence of that, the bill didn't quite stay the way it was framed. And so it was moved around in the sausage factory through the various machines, and it became pretty ugly from the standpoint of the Climate Action Coalition, before or the uh, U.S. cap and trade, before all was said and done. Also, Barack Obama did absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing to support it. And for all of his talk about climate, he was an empty suit when it came to cap and trade. And he's also said, I will never put forward a carbon tax. So I don't have a lot of respect for the man's climate position after all is said and done. Uh, So, yes, there were 35 of us. Uh, We self-funded this effort. We met in Washington, D.C. We hired researchers to help us get this done through the dues that we charged ourselves. And we were really optimistic. We worked our way through all the differences of opinion that 35 major employers, major businesses, and ultimately we were were guided by pragmatism. What will work? And not so much what will pass Congress, but what will work in the real world. And I still believe that there's an opportunity to do that. But one of the problems was symbolism around the whole effort. The Republicans called it cap and tax. They didn't take the time to understand, and I'm bitter towards those Republicans that called it cap and tax, because it was anything but. Yes, prices would rise, but those prices were because of trading systems where buyers and sellers in the public marketplace would actually fund what was required to buy and sell the credits. And it was not going to be, it would be passed on to consumers in the sense of higher prices, just like milk prices go up or bread prices go up. Well, gasoline prices would go up too because of the effects of it. But it's not particularly a tax. It, it, there's no way you could trace it back to somebody's internal revenue form. And so it was just that Republicans were immovable on the subject, even though the prior election, John McCain was supportive. And to John McCain's credit, he was supportive through the effort. And, and wanted to see it win. But Harry Reid wouldn't touch the House bill in the Senate. The, the House bill passed by seven votes. And in the House of Representatives, where there was a supermajority of Democrats, that meant that some several dozen Democrats voted against it. So when it came over to the Senate, Harry Reid said, I got senators running for the next election. We're not going to touch this. So it died. If you're just joining us, uh, that's John Heifmeister, former president of Shale Oil. We're talking about climate change and the politics in America at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My other guests are Jeremy Carl from the Hoover Institution and Bob Inglis, former Republican member of Congress. Uh, I want to hear from another Republican leader. Uh, Hank Paulson was on the Weather Channel recently, and here's what he had to say about climate risk. Climate change poses a massive threat to the world. It, it's a huge e- economic risk, and like any other major economic risk, and I, I think this is the biggest economic risk the planet faces, climate uh, change deserves to be understood and managed as the risk that it is. 
Bob Inglis, uh, that's former uh, Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, former CEO of Goldman Sachs. Uh, do you agree with him? What are the climate risks to South Carolina, to the East Coast, what are, to American business? Yeah, I, I, certainly it is a huge risk, and he's right. Um, I, think, um, I think that Hank would probably also agree well, I, mean, I don't put words in his mouth, but it's not an information deficit that we're facing here. It's an affinity deficit. Um, people know about climate change. It's not that we need to educate them that much about climate change. It would be helpful. But mostly what it is is an affinity deficit. They're not people that look like Republicans that are supporting action on climate and so if we have more of those, I mean, we've got to have some people, uh, what we say at republicen.org is, we'll sing this solo if we need to. We'll get a little duet going maybe out on the street. Uh, eventually we get some brass out there on the street and a little band strikes up. At that point, politicians will run around out front to lead the parade where it's already going because politicians <laughs> typically follow, they don't lead. Um, and so it's... Um, it's, it's, it is important to have information. I, I agree with that. Obviously, I'm not discounting the value of science education and all that. That's important. But even more important at this juncture is just having people, having us learn from people that we trust. And all of us learn from people we trust. We don't learn from people we don't trust. Jeremy Carl, uh, your uh, neighbor down the hall at the Hoover Institution for three years was uh, James Mattis, now the Secretary of Defense. He famously said uh, he led uh, some Marines in, in 2003 in Iraq, and he said famously, quote, that the military needed to be, quote, unleashed from the tether of fossil fuels, that the supply chain put Marine, cost Marine lives. It's a security issue. Do you agree with him on the military dimensions? Bob English just talked about affinity. Military uh, veterans are very much a Republican um, frame, you know, uh, core of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Speak to the national security aspects. Well, I, I mean, I think that the military has obviously done a lot in this area in the last, uh, under the last administration. Uh, some of it I thought was good. Some of it I thought was kind of uh, maybe not mission critical and, and, and kind of... Uh, putting a green patina where we didn't need to be. But I certainly agree with the general's comment, uh, especially concerning supply lines. And you actually saw a number of good marine deployments. Um, the XFOB, I'm forgetting, the. this is an experimental forward operating base that the, the marines operated that was essentially um, solar plus batteries that allowed you to reduce some of those um, supply lines and, and risks. Um, and so certainly to the extent that you can decouple fuel um, in certain types of combat theater, I think it can certainly be very helpful. Uh, I'm not sure how much that ties into the broader questions of climate change and, and climate risk, um, but I do think that certainly uh, there, are, there are elements of national security that come into play. John Hoffmeister, we have Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson now. He ran ExxonMobil. You interacted with him. Uh, tell us what kind of Secretary of State you think he'll be. I think he will be deliberate, thoughtful, analytical, and tough. Very tough. This is a man who is sure of himself. He doesn't need to tolerate fools. He's dealt firsthand with some of the nastiest people in the world, in the industry that he's come from. He could not have been a successful CEO at ExxonMobil without all of the qualities of a statesman and a diplomat, 
because when a big company like Exxon goes to Indonesia or Chad or Nigeria, wherever they go, they're not just going to exploit the molecules. Yes, that's the financial purpose. That's the commercial purpose. But they're also going to help build the capability in the country to be able to develop a local workforce, develop the school systems that can produce students who can do the work, because the whole purpose of going into countries like that to get the molecules is if you don't, don't, don't develop the indigenous population, including the institutions of government, the ministries, the legal system for adjudication purposes, your, your mission is to do all of these things simultaneously. I think he's about as well prepared in terms of his background as anyone I can think of, and certainly better than some of our previous secretaries of state, excluding, of course, George Shultz. <laughs> but, but I think the, the reality of, of, of what Rex brings to the job, and it shocked me, not that he would be chosen, but that he would accept the challenge, because he brings a hierarchical uh, knowledge of how to use power and authority, He's a brilliant negotiator, and his, if he's done deals with Vladimir Putin, then he's no, he's, he, he can only do those deals if he's making money for Exxon shareholders and showing profit. And to extrude that kind of agreement out of Vladimir Putin, Vladimir didn't get everything Vladimir wanted, that's for sure. And that's been Rex's MO. He, he negotiated the first Sakhalin 1 deal back in, what, 1998 or 99 in Russia. So he has a long history of tough difficult, challenging circumstances, and he's walking into a job that's full of them. And, and I, would, I would add to that, if I could, that uh, you know, I'm similarly very complimentary of General Mattis, and I think you would find that universally. I mean, I've literally never heard anybody say anything bad about General Mattis, and there's a reason why he passed 99 to 1 in, in the Senate, although there was you know, some talk at first. And, and I think before we kind of join in a Trump pylon, because this is San Francisco, uh, for whatever you want to say about temperament or whatever, um, I think the fact that he's chosen these two folks for these two super key positions you know, does speak to uh, in a positive direction and is encouraging. And I, absolutely, the, the same things about temperaments uh, that uh, were just mentioned uh, with uh, with Rex Tillerson, I would say the same things about General Mattis and my interactions with him. Just very thoughtful, very deliberate, not a hothead, very strategic, um, and, and, and also a very gracious person. So um, I, I think that's encouraging for the long term. Are you saying that they'll stand up to Trump even if their job's well, on the line? Trump, Trump's, I mean, Mattis said that flat out in his confirmation hearing, and I would not doubt it for a second. I mean, he is, this is a guy who's led people into battle with people come home in body bags. When you, I think that's one of the reasons he was so calm around the office during the confirmation. It was like nothing was going on. You just you know, pop your hand in the office. Hey, anything going on? And I think it's, it, when you've dealt with life or death situations like that, even standing up to the president is just not intimidating. Yeah, I, I, I Probably yeah um, I'm not so worried about him standing up. I think I, I'm with John. I'm surprised that somebody as good as Rex Tillerson would be w willing to take the job. Because if you have... The, the problem here is somebody needs to take that Twitter uh, account away from the president. <laughs> because if he keeps on tweeting things that then the Secretary of State has to go fix. I've got to believe that that's going to be a really miserable job for, for, 
for Rex Tillerson, same for General Mattis. I mean, my gosh, you're talking about policy being made in 140 characters at 3 a.m. because somebody got under his skin. And this is what really worries me, and it's a transactional view of life itself. And that is a very debased view of life. It's not just what I can get out of you and my relationship with you. There should be something higher than that. And American foreign policy has typically, here for a number of decades, been based on those higher ideals. And if we go into simply a transactional view of things, that is, that's surrendering American moral authority and basically buying into a Chinese view of the world. And I don't think we win that. I think that that, you know, so if I were, for example, at Taiwan, sure, there's maybe some excitement about it, it's shaking it up things over there. But I'd be a little bit worried if I were Taiwan because you know what? Maybe if he gets the art of the deal and a better deal, you're gone. You're fired. That's a line from The Apprentice. And so um, uh, I, I, I bless these guys for taking the jobs. Um, I hope they can overcome the 140 characters. And by the way, I say this in South Carolina, not just in San Francisco. Maybe it's why I got tossed out of the reddest district, the reddest state of the nation. But doggone, I'll tell you, there are worse things than losing an election. It's called losing your soul. And, and it's, it's better... It's much better to lose an election than to lose your soul. And um, it's really worth standing for things and for America to stand for things. For just joining us, Bob Inglis is a former Republican member of Congress from South Carolina. My other guests today at Climate One are John Hoffmeister, former head of Shell Oil, and Jeremy Carl from the Hoover Institution. I'm Greg Dalton. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. There are many areas where Democrats and Republicans can and do agree yet we continue to demonize each other. Why is that? George Marshall is the author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. He says that when an issue like climate change presents us with no clear-cut enemy, our natural tendency is to create one. Missing parts of narratives are like a vacuum that seeks to be filled. And therefore, indeed, what happens is that people slot an enemy into that narrative. They will bring one in. On my own side, on the environmental side, I think we have overemphasized the role of uh, the disinformation campaign or the, uh, the oil oligarchs funding uh, misinformation. I think we've been quite fast to demonize our companies which are doing some seriously negligent things. But that is also a way of playing down our own culpability in this through the way that we live. And, of course, people on the right respond to all of that by slotting People like me into the narrative, making us into the enemy. The danger is, however, that that then becomes the focus of the issue. And it's particularly dangerous in that I think we have this extraordinary partisan divide on this, where climate change has become so identified with your political identity that when we play these enemy games, we are just reinforcing the divide, which really shouldn't be there. We really, this should be an issue where we're finding common ground between people of different political worldviews. That's author and environmentalist George Marshall, who visited Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. We're going to go now to our lightning round. 
Uh, yes or no questions for each of our guests. Uh, this is where we get some laughs, make them slightly uncomfortable. So, John Hoffmeister, first one, uh, yes or no, oil executives who knowingly deceive the public about the risks of climate change should be held accountable. Yes. Follow-up for John Hoffmeister. <laughs> to reduce that possibility, oil companies don't keep documents that could later prove to be smoking guns, <laughs> like those internal papers that caught up tobacco companies. Release them. Jeremy Call, uh, yes or no, Hillary Clinton's campaign paid more attention to its big donors than average voters. True, in my view. Uh, Bob Inglis, yes or no, Donald Trump will serve out his four-year term. No. <clears throat> uh, John Hoffmeister, the fact that Russian intelligence agencies interfered in the U.S. election on behalf of Donald Trump clouds his legitimacy as president of the United States. Unfortunately, yes. Bob Inglis, yes or no, Donald Trump is a legitimate president. Yes. Uh, Bob Inglis, you are a rhino, Republican in name only. Um. Uh, yes, apparently, based on the current uh, the, the current climate change view, yeah, I'm definitely Republican name only. Uh, John Hoffmeister, yes or no? Shell Oil has a legacy of environmental destruction in Nigeria, and little of the oil wealth has benefited average Nigerian citizens. Both are true statements, but there is a lot behind it that I could explain. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Jeremy Carl, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has a Nixon to China opportunity to advance a global price on carbon pollution, which he says he supports. Yes. John Hoffmeister, during President Obama's eight years in office, the S&P 500 increased an average of 12% a year. Yes or no? Yes. Uh, that ties in, by the way, with George W. Bush. The market increased 15% when Bill Clinton was in office and 10% a year under President Eisenhower. Uh, Jeremy Carl, knowing what you know about rising seas, you would buy oceanfront property in Miami. True. Yes, absolutely. John Hoffmeister, knowing what you know about rising seas, you would buy oceanfront property in the Gulf of Mexico. No. Um, last one for Bob Inglis. Are more Republicans in Congress in the gay closet or the climate closet? I, th I think I think more in the climate closet. As far as I don't know, I, I know about yeah. I think more in the climate. Let's closet. Uh, give them a round. Thank them for getting through that climate closet. Uh, We're going to go quickly to audience questions, but I want to first roll something we have from uh, some people that we talked to. Uh, we sent out a reporter to talk to a, a couple. Um, this is a woman who ran for Congress in Monterey, 100 miles south of, of San Francisco. Uh, this is Casey and Bob Lucius. Casey uh, Lucius ran for Congress uh, last year as a Republican, uh, and she lost. Let's hear what she has to say, and then we'll get to the response, and we'll go to audience questions. Here's Casey and Bob Lucius. I'm Casey Lucius, and I recently ran for Congress in California's 20th District, Monterey County, Santa Cruz County, and San Benito County as a Republican. And I'm Bob Lucius. I'm a retired Marine officer. I was a Republican for much of my life. More recently, uh, registered as an independent. I think it was about a year ago 
I, I had written an op-ed in the local newspaper, the Monterey Herald, about um, the relationship between diet and uh, climate change and, and greenhouse gas emissions. Subsequently, in the, in the campaign, was it about uh, five or six months later, suddenly it kind of rose up again and a lot of people were drawing attention to it, but not in a really a positive way. Someone in the agricultural industry locally had forwarded the op-ed to the Farm Bureau and all of the Farm Bureau members and basically said, you know, Casey Lucius isn't who she appears to be. She's not really conservative. She's not really Republican. Look at this. Her husband's an environmentalist who works for the Humane Society and don't trust her. This was one of our uh, flyers. I think one of the core tenets of the Republican Party is control at the local level. So when we're talking about energy alternatives, we don't need federal energy initiatives. We really need those things to happen at the state level and at the local level and probably most importantly at the private industry level. We need to free up private industry to be able to innovate. My hope is that people will be open-minded about Republicans but also that Republicans will be open-minded about all of these challenges that we face as a country. That's Casey Lucius, who ran for Congress uh, south of San Francisco as a Republican. Bob Inglis, your response to that? She's saying once a party that's open and inclusive to, to ideas? Yeah, you asked me about whether I'm a Republican name only. Apparently, she's, uh, she'd be named that. She'd be called that. It's, it's an epithet addressed to her. But I think that what she was describing there is, is a, the kind of accountability that is the basis of conservatism. Same thing on climate action, same thing you know, on uh, balancing the budget. Um, I was the guy whose town hall meeting it was that a guy stood up and said to me, keep your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> and so... Um, uh, you know, apparently what that guy is, is a populist. This is a Tea Party time populist, like Mr. Trump, who says he's not going to touch Medicare. Well, you can't balance the budget unless you do something about entitlement spending. Paul Ryan knows that. He's an actual conservative. And so if somebody says that now, is they, are they, if they talk about doing something about Medicare, are you a Republican in name only because... What you're really about is you should be following along with Donald Trump. Um, or uh, if she um, says, really, we should be thinking about, uh, thoughtful about uh, farm policy and that sort of thing. Are you somehow opposed to this monolith that's, uh, that's out there? Or can we think outside the box? I, I think we've got to be able to think outside the box and be able to say, go to fundamental principles of accountability. And that's, uh, that's where I think we find our strength at RepublicEN.org about reaching conservatives on climate, because that's what it's all about, is just being accountable. We're talking with Jeremy Carl from the Hoover Institution, John Hoffmeister, energy executive, and Bob Inglis, former Republican member of Congress. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Yes, welcome. Now, uh, just having finished the book Dark Money by Jane Mayer, I am extremely concerned about Coke money everywhere in our political system. I mean, having read the takeover of the North Carolina government almost wholesale by Koch supporters, 
I've got big concerns about where they are in the rest of our country and how we stop them, because I see them as a major threat to moving any kind of climate policy forward. Thank you. Well, that's Bob Inglis, that's your neighboring state. Yeah, I'm concerned, too, although um, it it is true that um, campaign cash explains part of what goes on, but it it isn't the whole of the explanation. Um, I happen to think that the people who spent money to get up a wave of publicity that came over the seawall and shorted out all the climate change equipment spent it very well because they knew the tide was real high on discontent and distrust of government. If that tide had been lower, that campaign cash would never have gotten a wave over the seawall. So the most, while while campaign cash is important because it creates a wave, um, the most important thing is the level of the tide and what we, the people, are thinking and feeling. And so... Somehow we got to the place of real discontent and distrust of all institutions. And that's actually quite an unconservative position if you think about it. Conservatives should be people who believe in institutions because institutions restrain evil and keep order. And so this is actually anarchy, this this populist thing, is an anarchist wave or an anarchist tide and then these people spent some money coming over the seawall. Uh, so, yes, focus on campaign cash, but focus more on, on the rest of it, the, the tide, level of the tide and, and our level of discontent. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Most of tonight's discussion is focused on the national agenda, but I was really struck by what Casey, Casey Lucius had to say about the opportunities for doing things at the local level. So I'd really appreciate hearing from all of you what strategies and tactics you would offer people who want to work on climate solutions very, very locally, whether at the county level or at the municipal level. Thanks. John Hoffmeister. I I think the age of national one-size-fits-all solutions is dead in the water. I couldn't agree more. I think at a local level, you're going to get pragmatism. You're going to get people who know what they can and cannot do, and you're going to experiment or you're going to take initiatives that may not have macro impact on the whole of society, but if you accumulate enough of the micro impact initiatives, you're going to make a heck of a difference over time. Uh, and, and I think we should be doing more of that at the municipal, the county, and the state level, uh, and, and not count on the federal government, because I don't think the American people right now are in a mood to take a lot of federal government control. I think that's why we got the outcome we got. But also, I meet more and more individuals are volunteering for this, that, or the other group, including myself. I'm involved in several activities that deal with how do we reduce waste, how do we clean up fuel, how do we deal with alternatives, uh, so that we can grow the opportunity and, and, and then make progress regardless of what federal, uh, the federal government is not doing. It's also a uh, former oil man working on competition for oil, right? Right. <laughs> Uh, Let's go to our next question. Um, I just saw the film Chasing Coral um, at the Sundance Film Festival, and they are trying to very much make the connection between um, the bleaching and dying of coral reefs and the uh, collapse or the threat to our entire world ecosystem. And so I'm just curious about, you mentioned that, um, Bob, in your initial remarks, what, what do you all see as a way to 
um, address that and kind of wake people up to the connection between what's happening in our oceans and what's happening on the rest of the planet. Bob Inglis. Yeah, for, for me, that was, uh, you know, Scott Heron, the Aussie climate scientist I referenced earlier in that spiritual awakening. That's what he was showing us, is coral bleaching. And I haven't gotten to see uh, Chasing Coral yet. I saw Chasing Ice, but I'm looking forward to seeing it because it, the idea was to help help uh, make the coral appear, it be alive to us. In other words, have infuse it with something of a... Of, of life uh, of itself, in other words, some value. Um, and uh, will that move people? I hope so. I th- uh, something tells me that it will probably move people on the left more than people on the right. But um, on the other hand, people will see it perhaps as... Um, as you know, if you if you believe in creation care, and my wonderful friend Catherine Hayhoe does a great job of explaining this, is we're stewards of this creation. If you believe that, if that's your faith uh, teaching, then really you got to respond to the fact that the you, the things we're doing are are destroying part of that creation. Now, of course, it also has an impact on the humans, which is if that Great Barrier Reef goes away, then you don't have protection from the typhoons on that side of the Australia. Next question. Welcome. Hi. Um, I'd like to thank you guys as conservatives for coming out and talking to the bluest district and the bluest state about an issue <laughs> that I find incredibly important. And we need more people, conservatives like you, willing to talk about this. And uh, one of the many, there's many troubling things I find with the Trump administration, and one of them has been the assault on science and on climate and the um, way that there's been attacks on scientific integrity and silencing climate scientists. And today, for example, we saw a gag order on the EPA and the USDA Twitter accounts, and the scientists told to not speak to the media. And this is a really disturbing trend for me if we want to move forward on fact-based policy. And I wanted your opinion on the best way to be able to move forward and how we can stay vigilant to continue to make policy it's moving in the right direction john hoffmeister somebody taught me a long time ago you cannot stop stupidity from happening <laughs> and, and i and i mean that full well it is utter foolishness to silence people utter foolishness they will not be silenced i can assure you John, briefly, you also think that there's going to be more uh, civil unrest and confrontation over pipelines and energy infrastructure projects. Tell us briefly what you envision there. I think that the activism of today is going to rival the activism of the late 60s because this issue is becoming serious enough in enough people's minds. And I don't believe that the solution is at the federal government level, as I said just a few minutes ago. But I think the activists are going to take an awful lot of convincing to see the kinds of initiatives go forward that, unfortunately, we still need. We're going to have internal combustion engines in this country for the next 30, 40, 50 years. There's just no way around that, despite all the work we're going to do on electrification. And so it's going to be important to explain to people why you're doing what you're doing, how you're going to go about doing it, and do a whole lot of, of engagement with the public if you have any hope of getting infrastructure projects through. 
We have to wrap it up there. I'd like to thank Jeremy Carr from the Hoover Institution, John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, Bob Inglis, former member of Congress from South Carolina. I'm Greg Dalton. I'm the host of Climate One. I'd like to thank our audience in here in the room in San Francisco and online. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen podcasts in the iTunes store. Thank you all for joining us. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.